Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to episode 21 of Odeon Capital Conversations. On this episode, we'll trace the start and origins of today's inflation and take you back in time to early last year when Dick Beauvais warned of sharply rising prices and severe inflation this year based on his analysis of Fed activity and the money supply. We look at where we're at now and where our inflation is headed and how all this is impacting the markets. Dick Beauvais says Fed data is highly suspicious and he'll explain why. Also on this episode, we'll take a look at the banking sector, at bank valuations, bank income, and at how banks are shifting their securities around. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome to episode 21. We've lots to talk about inflation. It came in last week at 8.6%, and we'll also look at the banks and We'll take a deep dive with Dick's analysis on the banking sector, valuations, income, and the like. These markets are downright scary, Dick and Matt, volatile, and the major indices are plunging. We had a report out today, maybe it wasn't a scoop as some like to characterize it, of the Fed raising rates possibly as high as 75 basis points. Your thoughts? Well, first off, uh, Fed uh, spokespeople indicated in the last couple of weeks, more than one, that the possibility of a 75 basis point increase in rates was not off the table. In fact, I think Lael Brainerd said it uh, right after uh, Jay Powell said 75 basis points is off the table. She gave a speech in which she said, no, it's not off the table. And so didn't uh, this guy Bullard say the same thing. So, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that when information is 30 days or longer old, that it's a scoop. <laughs> Maybe it's a scoop for the Wall Street Journal because they were asleep <laughs> when these guys said this stuff. But uh, anyway, it's having a huge impact on the market. Yeah, move the uh, markets today. Yeah, essentially, what, what is happening in the market in the past, we'll say, five, six, seven days is a recognition that there is a change coming and that the change is going to be significant. The whole theory 
that basically the Fed would blink and would walk away and not really tighten its uh, balance sheet or increase interest rates because they would uh, worry about the impact of a recession is off the table. There's a clear recognition now on the part of investors that the Fed is unlikely to walk away at this point in time. And with, you know, the uh, people or the spokespeople from the administration all the way up to the president of the United States saying that we've got to kill inflation, inflation is our biggest problem, you know, the market is beginning to realize that, in fact, the Fed is going to act. It's going to be dramatic and it's going to hurt the value of financial assets. And therefore, the market is reacting, I think, in a reasonable, rational fashion to the information as as it's now being understood. Clearly, the people who've been listening to our podcast have been hearing us say this for almost a half a year now. But the point is, you know, it is now getting through to the market. I completely agree. I think the one, this is a great advertisement that people should be listening to our podcast and also reading your reports and and acting on your advice, because um, as as we're going to talk about today, you've made a lot of predictions and, you know, a lot of times it looked like maybe you're a little bit over your skis, but I apologize for every time I've doubted you, Dick. (laughs) Thank you. That's nice. Thank you, man. Well, there's a lot at stake, of course, for the uh, White House and for the Biden administration. If you think about it, a lot of his base are deeply impacted by inflation, especially the middle class and the uh, sectors of our population who are on lower incomes because the percentage of their disposable income that goes to the ordinary items, fuel, gas and food is much higher than for the higher earning sectors of our economy. So inflation's the target here. Yeah, and and quite frankly, it's not just the lower income people who get hurt by it. You know, you're seeing the stock market fall down, uh, you know, relatively substantially, and those are not low income people. Those are high income people. So inflation hurts everyone. It's it's not uh, restricted to one segment of the economy uh, or not. But I think, you know, I think the more interesting point at this at this juncture is basically, I think that uh, we have a lot of signs that inflation could be peaking here. Now, I mean, I think it's impossible to to call when a market is at the bottom. I think it's just as impossible to call when inflation has peaked. But I think if you get into the inflation numbers, you'll see very clearly that this inflation is not uniform across all segments of the economy, number one. And number two, that, you know, there are clear signs that inflation is peaking. Uh, the first, the first sign, you know, the one that we've looked at most, which basically argues that it's the money supply and the growth of the money supply relative to the growth of output, which causes, you know, inflation. Uh, the money supply growth is starting to decline in terms of its growth rate. You know, it, it, at the end of uh, 220, it had reached 27% on a year over year basis. It's now down to 8.2%. And if you, if you look at it on a quarter over quarter basis, it's now down to 6.4%. And if you go to another level and you look at deposits in the banking industry, they actually went down in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, whatever is happening in the marketplace right now is impacting money supply dramatically. And that decline in money supply, if we're right, is what will kill 
you know, the, 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 the inflation. The second thing is if, if you separate the different elements of the, if you will, CPI, and you take out number one, all of the energy information, and number two, the commodity information, which is, I'm going to say, food. And you start looking at things like housing and autos, there are clear signs that the prices of both are coming down. If you look at things like electronic, uh, if you will, goods, if you look at apparel, if you look at, you know, household goods, if you look at appliances, prices of those things are going down, right? On a, on a month over month basis. So essentially, we, we do see, you know, we do see elements of, uh, inside the CPI, which would argue that we are maximizing this impact of inflation. And we do see signs within the money supply that we are maximizing. So that, uh, again, I, I, I am not capable of, of predicting when we hit the peak in inflation, but we're awfully close to it. And I would be, I would be shocked if by the end of this year, it isn't down by 50% for where it is right now. In other words, closer to the four to 5% rate than it is now. And in 2023, it'll be, I, I think, lower still. So, you know, I think that the market, which is supposed to see the future, has been looking backwards too too often. In other words, this market is being driven by looking in the rear view mirror, not looking in the in 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 the, in the window in front, and therefore it's reacting dramatically to what it should have reacted to, you know, twelve months ago, and and it's not reacting to what it should be thinking about right now, which is they do have the ability to knock this inflation down. The going to use that ability. And we are seeing evidence of it. And just one further thought, you know, this whole supply chain issue, will Target and Walmart have excess inventory? You know, they, they, and, 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 you know, the stock prices of both companies went down when they indicated they had excess inventory. How do they have excess inventory if we have supply chain problems, which is reflecting the fact that goods can't come to market? This whole supply chain thing, you know, is going to go away because what we're going to find is sector by sector, there are too, there are going to be too many cars sitting on used car lots, you know, houses. Now we're starting to see the number of months supply of available houses for sale going up. So the, it, it is not supply chain issues. It's money supply and money supply is not growing at the rate that it was and it will knock down this inflation. Do you think that we can knock down the inflation? You, you said you think inflation will be 50% of where it is, so you're calling basically a forehandle on inflation for year end? Right. Do you think that happens without killing GDP and without triggering a recession? I, I unfortunately strongly believe that we will have this recession. Um, when, when we talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, the Fed balance sheet, the, the one thing that, you know, I, and I, I, the number is so high, it's almost impossible to believe. But just to give you the sources, I mean, the, there is the Federal Reserve puts out something which is called uh, the, a review of the financial institutions in the United States. And in that, it shows that the mortgages over the years 2020 and 2021, uh, home mortgages went up on a net basis of, you know, roughly 1.3 trillion. If you take a look at the Fed balance sheet, Mortgage-backed securities went up 1.3 trillion. So, if and if you do the division, assuming that 
the, the, the Federal Reserve numbers concerning, you know, what's happening with, with the financial institutions are correct, and the Federal Reserve numbers are correct about what's happening to their balance sheet, 97% of the net increase in mortgages, home mortgages in the United States in the last two years were paid for by the Federal Reserve. We're going to have a recession because if the Federal Reserve is going to start selling those mortgages now, and they they had bought 97% of them. And again, I, I find it very hard to believe these numbers, but they're not my numbers. They're the Federal Reserve's numbers. If the Federal Reserve was buying 97% of the increase in the mortgage uh, mortgages outstanding in the period from the beginning of 2020 to the end of 2021, and now they're going to start selling mortgages, they're going to create a real problem in the housing industry which I hope to heavens benefits Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to put a little plug in there. Yeah, I think we're going to have a recession. I think it's going to be uh, moderate. I think it's going to be mild, but I think we're going to have one. Dick, what drove inflation uh, last month? And is it going to head downwards going forward, even though you've said it's difficult to make those kind of forecasts, but a general thought on it? There were two things that spiked up last uh, month. One, obviously, was uh, energy prices, and I don't care if it's oil, coal. Coal has been soaring, as you know. We have a, a tremendous analyst there, Matt Farwell, uh, who does a phenomenal job on this subject. Uh, but coal prices have soared, oil prices have, are up, natural gas prices have soared, and that happened last month. But it accelerated. The other area where you see an acceleration in prices is food. I mean, you know, you're seeing grains going up, bread, you know, grains are going up in price because the fertilizer, which is made from natural gas, went up in price and the farmers are paying the higher price for this fertilizer, which means that they're going to charge more for the grain, which means that we're going to pay more for the bread. And it's true of, of a wide variety of products array of products, I should say, which which we buy in the grocery store. Um, so I think those two factors uh, were, the, were the critical variables. And we have, I think, seen a peaking of the price of automobiles in the last uh, four to six weeks, which is not showing up yet in the CPI, but which I think will show up very clearly first in, in, in used cars, where I think you'll see a decline coming. Well, I think it's already happened. Commodities, uh, fuel, autom automotive products, that's what caused the spike in, in, uh, in the month that just ended. And I don't think any one of them are going to be causing that spike over the next six months. Of course, you've traced all of this uh, back to your important report back in February last year, and you laid out all of what we're now seeing come into play the money supply and the Fed's actions and all that activity. So you called it correct. Well, yeah, so, some years um terribly wrong. <laughs> this year, this year I got it right. But I mean, you know, uh, next year, hopefully I'll be more right than wrong. I don't know. But this year it, it, it worked out as expected. In terms of the interest rates rises that we're expecting from the Fed. All the commentators on media seem to harp on this interest rate rises. It's kind of noticeable. And nobody gives a lot of attention except Dick Beauvais and a few others out there hard to find on the money supply. What's Why this lack of focus on the money supply? Well, because uh, when Volcker was the chairman of the Fed uh, and, and um, 
who was the big guru on uh, on money supply uh, out of the University of Chicago. Anyway, um, he, he had convinced the Fed that uh, it should be focusing on the money supply. And therefore, the Fed reduced its emphasis on interest rates and increased it on the money supply. And uh, it, it turned out to be incorrect. I mean, the, the money supply was not uh, an indicator of what was going on in the economy. And, and therefore, money supply, uh, you know, was devastated as, as a theory, and people simply walked away from it. In other words, back in, in, in 1970s, you had uh, a minimum of eight different ways of counting the money supply, all of which we no longer look at any longer. So, so the net effect is money supply fell out of favor because it wasn't the best indicator. Now, my, my argument is that people don't know how to count the money supply because it's too complicated and they can't get the appropriate data. And that's why the money supply figures were not um, good indicators at that time. But when money supply didn't work, we went back to interest rates and the total focus has been on interest rates for the last, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple of, de- you know, a couple of decades and nobody cares about the money supply any longer, except a couple of oddballs like myself and I don't know, there was a guy on CNBC uh, Sunday night, uh, a professor at, at, at one college, and he was, uh, you know, pounding and pounding the table on why it's all money supply and forget everything else. It's, it's also kind of interesting that people are starting to come back slowly to, uh, you know, looking at the money supply numbers, uh, because I, I think if we were able to calculate them correctly, they would show that uh, that is the reason for the increase in, in inflation, the reason why inflation may be peaking. The name you were hunting for was uh, Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman, exactly. And, and, and the famous quote was, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And his, his key argument that was never really rebutted was that there's no place in the history of the world or anywhere on the planet where inflation occurred without prior increase in the money supply or growth in the rate of the supply of money. So it's basically everything you've been saying. And I think I think what's interesting is you go back to 2008, um, when Obama did his $800 billion bailout, and everyone was saying that's too much, it's going to be inflation, and then inflation never came. And then you get the modern monetary theorists coming out there and saying, we're all Keynesian now, and that Milton Friedman was wrong, this proved Friedman wrong. But it, it does show that there's 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 limits to everything, and it seems like the the M two money supply this time has found it has found its partner. We've reached our limits here and over the cliff if we don't pull back and get that balance sheet down. Yeah, and, and the balance sheet is really worrisome. Um, what, what what I've done is um, the Fed provides the numbers; they do a really good job here. What the Fed does is it gives you a breakdown of the maturity of each of the classes of securities that it buys. In other words, how many, how many bonds did it buy that uh, you know, is over 10 years in maturity? How many bonds did it buy that are, are three or four years in maturity? They're, of course, called notes, not bonds. Uh, and then they do the same thing with the mortgage-backed securities. How many did we buy in each one of these periods? And what, what you see is that um, it, and it's most horrendous in the mortgage-backed securities area, but over 97% of the mortgage-backed securities, which, is, which are owned by the Fed, you know, are basically 10 years or longer in maturity. 
And if if you take a look at make a, a guesstimate at what the uh, what they uh, got in terms of yield on those mortgages, mortgage-backed securities that they got, it's something in the three percent area. Well, the current mortgage rate is five and a half percent. So that means that what is effectively $2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities are underwater on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Now, now we discussed this last week, and, and I think Matt had the best idea, which, which is they shouldn't touch them uh, because if they start selling them, you know, they're basically going to uh, show that they're losing money uh, on, on this portfolio. Not to mention the fact that they, they will be messing up this whole housing finance market, which they've messed up already. Uh, they'll just mess it up worse. But if you go over to the treasuries, there are so many treasuries that it doesn't matter that the longer dated treasuries are underwater, but they are. Because again, I can't come up with what the yield is on, on the treasuries that I can only guess based upon what the yield was in the period that they bought them. But on the treasuries, the yields might be under 2%. And we've got the uh, 10-year sitting at 3.36% right now. So I don't know, the Fed has got a a real problem here. They may want to, you know, they may want to kill inflation. They may have the political, if you will, go ahead to kill inflation. But if if they're going to do it by selling their treasuries and their mortgage-backed securities, they're going to create a lot of trouble. And they're going to create enough trouble that I think it'll, fall, it'll result in just repeating a recession. But uh, uh, I, I, it, it, it's un- everybody is mad at the Fed now, which they should be. But it really is unbelievable that the Fed would get themselves into this position of, of buying securities at a low price. Uh, I'm sorry, at a very high price, a very low yield, and now having to sell them at a low price. You know, the, the thought is buy low, sell high. The Fed buys high, sells low. You know, that's not, doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So they're selling these securities at a loss, and you said that could raise more trouble. It would roil the markets in what way? Well, I mean, number one, uh, it's, it's going to force interest rates up a, a lot higher. Number two, uh, it is going to create, as I, as, and I'm repeating, so I apologize, it's going to create real problems in the housing finance market. Number three, it, it is going to uh, force the Fed to rethink how it produces its balance sheets because it is not showing, is not showing, uh, not marking to market the value of the securities that it owns, and it must do so. It must do so because it tells every bank, you know, that they have to do it. So, so the Fed is a bank. It's a central bank. It's a big bank, but it has to do so also. So I, I'm not sure, you know, how the Fed is going to deal with this issue. But if they're going to, you know, aggressively start to shrink that balance sheet, they're going to have to deal with this issue because they can't sell mortgage-backed securities uh, and, and, and show anything but a loss in doing so. Is there any requirement that they show a mark-to-market or would we even know? Is there any metric that you would look to to find out if they're marking their book or is it just we know it because of the yields? We know it because they specifically indicated that they don't mark the market. You know, they, they, they have, you know, it is public information that they do not mark their securities to market. So Yeah, what I'm saying is when they, when they do sell and they're selling at a loss, how how would that translate into remarking the book, or is just more of like interpretation? 
Yeah, well, uh, they do have an income statement, which they produce every uh, three months, every quarter. And in that quarterly income statement, they would ha- I would think they would have to show loss on securities, loss on sales of securities. Uh, but again, it's the Fed. So who knows what they'll do to, to hide it. But, you know, if they, if they do their income statement using, they don't use GAAP, but if they you did their income statement using moderately reasonable accounting standards, they're going to have to show they're losing money by selling these securities. Have they started selling? I mean, I looked at the weekly reports and I know they promised they're going to start June 1st, but no, there's not been any sign that they haven't have started yet. No, you're right. They haven't, they haven't sold anything yet. They, they have stopped buying. To, to, they, they stopped buying. That was, month, that was a month ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, yeah, they've stopped buying. You know, specifically the last three weeks, they haven't bought any securities, maybe a billion, uh, a few billion worth of treasuries, but nothing. Uh, but they haven't sold anything. Do you think there's going to be a lack of credibility when they said they're going to start selling in June? And here we are, more than half, almost halfway through June, and, and they've not made any progress. Yeah, I think this Federal Reserve meeting that we're going to have uh, shortly is is going to be a a big one because I think they're going to have to either do the 50 basis points or the 75. And I really don't care which one it is, um, but they're going to have to say, what are we going to do about our promise to shrink the balance sheet starting this month? As, as you say, it's, it's, it's almost halfway through the month. Uh, June June's got thirty days, and we've got thirteen in the book. Uh, so it's it's going to be a very interesting meeting. Dick, is there any precedent in history for what the Fed is going through right now and shrinking the balance sheet? Has it anything to look back on in time to say, oh, this is how they did it then, this is how we may move forward now, or is it all uh, walking in the dark, confusion, a bit of a nightmare well, even? They, they tried it a few years ago, uh, and that's when they got what they called the taper tantrum in that the markets reacted very negatively, so they stopped. But in terms of going back over the long sweep of history of the, of the Federal Reserve of the United States, I'm not aware of any period in which they actively attempted to shrink their balance sheet. We're going to look at the banking sector in depth in our next segment coming up. I just wanted to throw this out to you, Dick, also. I'm really curious. Um, You've often mentioned the balance sheets at banks, how large these balance sheets are of consumers and savers, mountains and mountains of money and cash. We've seen interest rates move up slightly and with further rises on the horizon very soon. Is there any pressure on the banks to raise interest rates for depositors and how might that impact their bottom line? Or is this such an unusual situation with the large deposits, they may not feel compelled to raise interest rates for the retail consumer? Yeah, no, your last point is the correct one. Uh, They don't feel any, uh, they're not feeling compelled to increase interest rates. Number one, they don't want all these deposits which are pouring in because most of these deposits are being used to buy securities and they don't want the securities that they're buying because interest rates are going up and the value of those securities are going down, which I guess we'll discuss in more detail in a minute. The, the, the deposits you know, are stopping coming in. The banks are very happy about it because it doesn't mean they have to buy more securities. And therefore, there's no indication 
that they're going to increase the rates that they pay uh, depositors. Uh, now, historically, they have never increased rates on deposits at the same rate as they've increased rates on loans, which is why you know they make a lot of money. I don't see any reason whatsoever that they're forced to increase interest rates on deposits at the present time, and therefore I don't think they're going to do it. Uh, I think rather they are ecstatic over the fact that rates are going up. They can't be accused like the oil companies of price gouging because they don't set the rates. The Federal Reserve and the market sets the rates. And all they have to say is, hey, we didn't raise these rates. You know, you guys raised the rates, so don't, don't criticize us. So, so the net effect is um, their margins are going to expand meaningfully this year. The net interest income of the banks are going to go up very meaningfully this year. I mean, you know, you were hopeful in the last couple of years that you got a half of 1%, a 1% increase in the net interest income of the banking industry. You talk to any bank today, they're going to tell you that they're looking at 10, 11, 12% increase in their net interest income in the, uh, in the coming year. So we're going from, you know, there's very tiny increases in net interest income, some decreases in net interest income to unusually large increases in net interest income, which are going to cause bank earnings to look quite good all through 2022, whether we have a, a downturn in the economy or not. You're listening to Audien Capital Conversations with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstein, and I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dick, you've done some new research on banks. We were talking about the banking sector generally there earlier, but this is a, a deep dive. You've looked at valuations, earnings, and how the banks are shifting securities around, and you'll explain all that to us. Of course, the banks are flush with a lot of money. So it's a fascinating time to take this deep dive. Well, this is unfortunately very complicated, and um, I hope I can simplify it. Um, well, we're right. going to stay tuned throughout this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to put people to sleep. But, but the point is this. Um, the bank gets $100 in deposits, all right? What the bank would like to do is lend that money out because they're going to pay a quarter of 1% for the money that came in, and they're going to lend it out at 4%. But unfortunately, they have not been able to lend it out in the last uh, couple of years, because corporations are filled with cash themselves, and, and they're not borrowing. So, so the net effect is the money comes in, $100 comes in, and the bank has to buy, we'll say, government securities. Now, when the bank buys the government securities, they can put them in one or two different buckets. They can say, we bought these securities, we bought $100 worth of securities, and we're going to sell them as soon as we can sell them. So they put it in a bucket called available for sale. They're going to sell them. The accountants say, well, wait a minute. If, if you buy these things for sale, you got to mark them to market. So if interest rates go up, the value of that $100 in securities that they bought goes down. And now the banks are reducing their equity because they didn't even sell these securities, but they got to mark them to market. So the value goes down. So the $100 
they invested in available for sale treasuries is now worth $90 because interest rates went up. So that means the equity of the bank just went down by $10. Banks have a second option. They can say, okay, we don't want to do this because you know we're going to be stuck you know, in a rising interest rate environment with taking all of these losses on our available for sale securities. So what we're going to do is we're going to tell the government we're going to hold these securities until they mature, which means that we paid 100 bucks for these securities. In this example, we're going to sell them for 100 bucks 5, 10, 15 years from now when they mature. Therefore, we don't have to mark to market, and therefore, we don't have to change you know, our equity. Since most banks have not experienced a rise in interest rates for the last five years, most banks have not taken that option. They've not taken the option to put these securities that they bought in the bucket, which they don't have to mark to market. They got them all in the bucket where they're marking to market, which means that they're taking tens of billions of dollars of losses in marking to market these available for sale securities. So what are they doing now? Either they can say, okay, we don't care. We're gonna, you know, over time, we'll sell these securities, we'll take this loss. It won't be that meaningful because we're making so much money on the other side uh, as a result of the interest rates going up. But a lot of banks are saying, no, we're not gonna take this hit. We're gonna change the strategy and take all our available for sale securities and put them in the held to maturity bucket. All right, so what am I saying? I'm saying $100 in deposits come in, we buy $100 of securities called available for sale, we have to mark them to market. We don't wanna do that, so we go to the government and say, we're not gonna do that, we're gonna take all these securities and put them in another bucket called held to maturity so we don't have to mark anything to market. Now, they think they're doing something smart by doing that, but they're not, because now they're taking these low-yielding securities and they're holding on to them for the next 10 years. That's a dumb move. It's going to lower their earnings increases. They should take the hits, take the losses right now, which they don't want to do, and avoid taking you know low yields over a long period because they put these things in a hold-to-maturity area where they can't sell them. I'm, I'm confused. Is this your forecast or, or is this already happening or is it like a, a repeat of the past? Like what, what gives you confidence that, that the banks are all going to make this collective mistake? Yeah, they're doing it. They, you know, in the first quarter, um, they took such a major hit that, uh, you know, most banks in the United States moved the securities in the hell to maturity bucket. The, um, if you will, the brave banks, the banks which have better accounting systems, said, we're not going to do this. We're going to just let the chips fall where they may because we're making so much money from the other things that we're doing. So, you know, a company like Regions Financial says, no, we won't do it. Uh, a company like JP Morgan uh, Chase is saying, no, we won't do it. But most other banks are saying, we're doing it. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to sit around and, and, and keep marking to market. Because if you take a look at the last 60 years of the yield on treasury securities versus the inflation rate, the average has been that the yield on treasury securities is 200 basis points above the inflation rate. 
No, I mean, if that would have happened, the yield on Treasury securities would be 10% right now on the 10-year Treasury. But ho- hopefully, as I say, inflation is peaking and, and you know, it could get a little bit higher. But uh, it's a peaking and therefore we won't have to do that with the yield on Treasury securities. But the whole financial system is at risk here. And that's what you're seeing play out in the stock market in the last few days. And the stock market is now acting, in my view, in a rational fashion relative to the risks which are out there in the marketplace. What you're outlining here, Dick, that applies to all the major league players and some of the regionals and larger banks, the JP Morgans, the Citigroups, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, not all banks. Well, yeah, I mean, all banks have been collecting huge amounts of deposits here for the last, they haven't been able to lend the money. In other words, you know, they haven't loaned the money into uh, a lot of uh, inventory loans or or building of new facility loans or even home mortgages. Uh, They've been buying securities. And the government tells them, you know, we want you to buy securities because the government needs someone to buy their debt. So so the net effect is, no, this affects all banks. Even the smallest banks, the small small. Bank that has banks even? A bank that has $100 million in deposits probably has 60% of that money in securities. So the government has forced them to buy these securities, right? Well, the government has forced the bigger ones to buy them. The smaller <laughs> ones have nothing to do with the money. You know, if the deposit comes in and nobody's borrowing the money from you, you've got to put it into securities. And that's what they've been doing. They've been putting it to work on these securities. Wow. So this is a a dangerous road they're walking. It could be bad for the markets. Will there be a resolution of any kind, do you see? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as I I say, once this recession ends, I really believe that uh, we're going to see a surge in borrowing for natural resources, manufacturing, defense, you know, the thing we say every week. And therefore, I think the banks will get out of it in that fashion. And I think the banks will actually make a lot of money on the money which is now invested in securities. Because again, if you're getting, right now you're getting 4% on a loan for for a commercial loan, you know, and, and you're getting, you know, we'll say 50 to 100 basis points on a security, right? If you start moving hundreds of billions of dollars, which is what we're talking about, into loans, that gap between, we'll say, a half of 1%, 1% to 4%, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to cause bank earnings to go way up. And if they're not moving it to 4%, but they're moving it to 7%, because interest rates have gone up, you know, the bank earnings outlook is, is going to be really good. Uh, in the 1970s, you know, bank earnings never really went down even though the inflation was, you know, severe, what went down was the multiple on bank stocks. They dropped to four times earnings. But the point is, bank earnings went up, you know, in my, if my memory is correct, every year, but bank earnings over the decade went up more than any other decade that I'm aware of. You offered some numbers, and you might want to explain them, uh, the significance. JP Morgan Chase increased its CET1 ratio from 3.5 to 4.0, and then 4.5, the regulators are likely to force that upon them. I should uh, rephrase that. I'm having a lot of trouble getting all these numbers to fit into, uh, you know, you know, nice and, and clear slots to, to give you specific numbers, which, you know, I can really stand behind. But, you know, essentially, um, 
the banks in the United States had a, a very good first quarter, right? Their, their earnings for the top 15 banks, uh, and, and I'm trying to, you know, find find the number in my in my uh, list here. Oh, yeah, the, the, the 19 largest banks uh, in the country showed a 32 billion dollar increase in earnings in the first quarter. They 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 had 32 billion dollars in earnings. Not that's ex- that's a that's a big number. Yeah, well, banks make a lot of money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Good job, you're covering them. There's a reason. There's a reason why people hate banks, right? Anyway, they 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 they, they, that, they didn't increase. They had thirty-two billion dollars in profits, right? Now, because of this accounting stuff, which you know, very complicated accounting stuff, the value of their common equity dropped by forty-nine billion. So, if we we if the common equity of the bank is a hundred bucks, you added thirty-two bucks to the hundred, so now you got one hundred thirty-two, and now you turn around and say, wait a minute. The common equity didn't go from 100 to 132. It went from 100 to, we'll say, 51. Mm-hmm. How can that happen? Well, it happened because of this, you know, complicated mark-to-market situation with their securities. So, if they stabilize, you know, the decline in the value of their securities, either by selling as much as they can or by putting them in the held to maturity bucket, then the increase in earnings continues to come, but they're not marking to market as many securities, and therefore their equity is going up. The government says, I'm not, I'm not going to wait for you to do this stuff. The government says, hey, you just dropped your equity by, you know, the, the 19 largest banks, you dropped your equity by $49 billion in the first quarter. You got to make that up now. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to wait for the future. You got to do it now. So they go to these banks, and the banks either you know shrink the size of their assets to get their ratios where the government wants them, or they have to stop buying back stock. They have to stop increasing their dividends, and they have to think about issuing common stock. Now, since they don't want to do any of the, so to speak, above, they're not willing. To, to cut their dividends, that, that would be very negative for them. They're not willing to sell more shares of stock. Uh, what they're going to do is stop buying back stock. And that, that has, it has already had a big impact on the prices of their securities. In other words, before this major decline occurred in um, you know, the value of uh, you know, bank stocks, this was the reason. The reason was that their equity was going down, even though their income was going up and investors were saying, this is no good. The value of the assets of these companies are overstated. This is no good. We don't want to own these stocks. So, you know, this increase in interest rates, you know, is not the bonanza that, you know, you hear on television, so to speak, you know, for the banking industry. It's a problem for the banking industry unless they stabilize the value of the securities and they make a hell of a lot more loans. And I think they will do both things over the next 12 months. It's not going to happen very quickly. Dick, if I could take you back to what you said recently, uh, as recently as last week, uh, you were talking about this American manufacturing revival and the banks sitting on a mountain of cash. And you also mentioned how inflation was eroding 
the value of that money that depositors have at the banks. So that's one aspect of it. And also, there was a report out, I don't know, do you give it much credence or credibility that consumers were burning through a lot of cash now? Will the banks still be sitting on this mountain of cash later in the year or early into next year to finance the manufacturing revival? Well, I yes. The, the simple question, answer to the question is yes. I mean, ultimately, it runs out, right? But there is so much of it. It's it's a historically unique number. It's so huge that I can't see it happen. I don't see them running out in the next year or two. And the analogy, again, you go back to the end of World War II, you know, where the banks have virtually all cash. Only in 1944, only 14% of the assets of the American banking system were in loans. Everything else was cash in government securities. So now, you know, people come out, they buy houses, they buy cars, they start, you know, spending the money that they earned uh, during the war that they couldn't spend because they were buying savings bonds. Anyway, the point is they now start buying everything in sight. By the 19, by 1960, the, the end of the 50s, 1960, the banks ran out of cash. All right. And they had to come up with new borrowing mechanisms to come up with more cash. Will that happen again? I think it will. I think it will for the same reason, only this time it'll be businesses borrowing the money. And I think, you know, it'll take maybe two, three, four years for it to happen. And in that period, the banks will make huge amounts of money. That's amazing. I guess we can, in part, thank the COVID pandemic economy for a lot of this money sitting in bank deposits people weren't spending going on holidays going to restaurants vacation or buying anything yeah you're exactly right i mean basically speaking they the government was giving them the money they were using some for home improvements some to buy appliances some to buy furnishings all of which they're not doing anymore and and therefore there was more money coming in than they were spending they they weren't borrowing and so they built up these these cash reserves which they're now starting to utilize. I have a question, Dick. In terms of philosophy, you, you say they're not buying furniture, they're not you know, spending anymore. Isn't, isn't the inflationary cycle, unless I'm totally mis- mistaken, that people spend more aggressively because they have to buy now before the price rises even more and, and your money is losing value as it sits in the account? So the idea would be that consumers are motivated to spend because they see inflationary signals and they should buy while it's still cheap? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was saying they're not buying anymore, I mean, they're not buying any furniture, appliances, you know, home improvement, they're buying everything else. They, uh, they're they're traveling again uh, at, at, at a rate almost similar to what it was before the pandemic. Uh, this, they're, 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 they're buying more recreational products, uh, more entertainment, they're going out to restaurants again. Uh, they are spending, there's, there's no doubt about that. And they are starting to borrow more on their credit cards because they are spending. Uh, what, what what I think is going to happen, however, is they're going to get frightened. I don't know if these Michigan surveys mean anything or not. You know, these consumer service surveys done by, you know, consum- consumer sentiment surveys done by the University of Michigan, which come out, you know, I think on a monthly basis, uh, if not on a quarterly basis. But anyway, they show that the consumer is now frightened that the consumer, you know, doesn't, you know, feel confident about where the economy is going. And therefore, even though the consumer 
is spending on a different number of goods than they had been, I think that they're going to pull back their spending. And I think that's going to affect, as I said at the beginning, that's going to affect car prices, home prices. It's going to affect, you know, apparel price. It's already affected apparel prices. Uh, so I think I think that the recession will cause them to pull in their, their spending a bit. But right now they're spending. They're spending. You're, you're exactly right. They're spending a lot. That's an interesting analysis. I spoke to a businessman last week complaining about how hard it was to hire workers, to find people, to wait on tables, all those kind of things. And you see all the hiring signs all over the Northeast. I don't know if it's like this in every part of the country, but his take was interesting that the government sort of and employers would welcome a, a little bit of a recession. So to make people jump up and maybe look, start coming in and looking for work. Yeah, no, you, well, you're right again. But I mean, I, I think the ratio right now is there are two jobs available for every one person who is able to take a job. All right. Uh, and, and the ratio has never been that high ever before. The problem is I don't believe the number. I flat out don't believe it. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, these employers are claiming they want to hire all these people. And then, you know, when people go and try to get the jobs, they don't get the jobs because the I, I don't I just don't believe that the employers are, are, are telling the truth here. Uh, and again, we're getting all these stories about these diversity interviews, which are being done in which uh, the employer, you know, interviews, you know, 10 people for a job that's already been filled simply because they've got to show that they're trying to meet these ESG requirements and these diversity requirements. So I, I don't I don't know. I you, you are right. There's not a lot of clarity on it, but you talk to some business people as I do and they can't find workers. I mean, it's in the service industry, a lot of it. And you will see signs along the highways hiring and uh, some places have closed because they can't find staff. I mean, I would say just as a business owner myself, we, you know, going back into Q4, we, you know, we, 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 we we're constantly hiring and constantly just like any business. Sometimes you have turnover, voluntary or involuntary. And, and in Q4, it was hard to get anyone to even show up for an interview, you know, and we're talking about zoom interviews. So you don't even have to, you know, roll out of bed and, and then, you know, multiple times you, you think you're making a job offer and you think you found the candidate and then they don't ever even respond to the job offer. They don't show up on the first day. In Q1, it started to get a little bit better. And like lately, I feel like the job market is pretty healthy right now. I feel like for, for employers, I feel like people are now applying. I think um, my sense is if people weren't interested in working because of COVID, that's gone. Or if they weren't interested in working because they got so much COVID money, it sure feels like you know, people are saying, "I you you want a seat when the music stops, and if we're heading into a recession, you want to you want a job now before the yeah. the job market crashes." And it sure feels to me like it's, it's a lot easier to hire than it was just even six weeks ago. I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, basically, uh, people are now getting frightened again. If we use these Michigan surveys as being accurate, uh, and when they get frightened, they they want a job, and and they're not going to get a, a handout or a check from the government uh, because it, it's impossible to get it through the uh, Senate uh, plus Joe Manchin. Uh, and therefore, uh, I think that uh, people will be looking for jobs. Salaries have been rising across some sectors. I think you mentioned, Dick, Bank of America has raised a minimum. Yeah, Bank of America is now at $22 uh, for a bank teller, which is the minimum wage. 
Uh, and, you know, they have promised to get to $25 an hour in two years. Um, other banks, you know, I mean, because I, I look closely at banks, um, you know, they, they're, they're, um, they're at, uh, you know, anywhere from 19 to 20 uh, in terms of their minimum wage. Um, I happen to be, uh, you know, close to a UPS uh, franchise uh, and, and they're paying um, something on the order of 1550 uh, as the minimum wage. My nephew owns uh, 45 uh, Dunkin' Donuts stores and he's paying 1650 and and he, he's he's going to have some kind of a heart attack over it with the <laughs> oh but does donuts of course too doesn't help <laughs> he's a lot of donuts too <laughs> he's, he's a big boy <laughs> not a boy but anyway the point is you know um you know this this concept of we're going to increase the minimum wage by five percent, six percent out the yeah. window. They increase it by seventy to one hundred percent. I mean, it, uh, so it is a problem. Uh, but but I do I do think that problem is going to ameliorate. In in the last, if you take a look at the annualized change in the hourly rate uh, uh, that people are being paid, it it dropped from five point two percent to three point eight percent. So, you know, it, there may be some ease showing up in the wage market also. We're almost out of time, Dick and Matt. Uh, Dick, uh, good times ahead eventually for the banks when they get out of this current situation and we have the recession and then things blossom again and we'll have the manufacturing renaissance in America and they sort out all the ratios. Yeah, that's the, that's the buck I'm in. I'm not I'm not moaning and groaning because you know the increasing interest rates. I'm not moaning and groaning because you know there's, there's going to be a recession. I'm really focused on the beauty that's going to occur after that. Fence manufacturing, natural resources, banks. People are going to make a lot of money in doing the things that are grace, which are best for this country. Do you, do you think, Dick, that banks lead us out of the recession in terms of uh, stock performance? Or do you think they bottom with the rest of the market? Uh, I, I think they bottom with the rest of the market. I think banks lag on the way down and lag on the way up. And it, get, it gets into the inventory cycle. In other words, when, when times get bad, people go running to their banks and taking working, working capital loans. So bank loan numbers go up and earnings go up while the rest of the economy is suffering, right? Then all of a sudden, as the recession goes through, people pay down these working capital loans that they took out and the economy starts to move up. You know, the, the, the companies are leaner and meaner and therefore they get more profits coming to the bottom line. They, t they move down their loans and they go buy things. So the banks follow, they follow the cycle. They don't lead it as far as, as, far as I can see. It looks like we're headed into a period of financial beauty when we come out of all this current turmoil and interest rate talk and, uh, and getting the Fed balance sheet in order. Dick and Matt, another great episode, thought-provoking. We covered a lot of ground and we'll come back next week. We'll look at the markets and talk about another area of research that Dick is tackling. And until then, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part.
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.